Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always pleasing in your sight. The Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> well, I stand before you tonight with many aches and pains. You know, I hesitate to tell you all of this because my track record on such things is not very good. But I have joined an exercise group that meets on Mondays and Saturdays. And at yesterday's grueling workout, of course, they're all grueling, a friend admitted that he had only gotten four hours of sleep the night before. We talked about the importance of sleep, how important it is to get a good night's sleep. Then after that workout, our leader, who wasn't present for that conversation, also mentioned the importance of getting enough sleep. He admitted that he needed to work on that as well. One spiritual discipline that I've read about is getting enough sleep. I got it already. I get it. Enough. I need to get enough sleep. Yes, sleep is important, and many of us don't get enough of it. That's the case. But at the same time, sleep is a temptation, isn't it? Falling asleep in class is not a good habit, right? Right? Amen? (laughs) Falling asleep in church, also not a good habit. Amen? Well, in our gospel text this evening, Jesus gives us an ominous imperative. Stay awake. He says, stay awake. Now, he's not saying that sleep is bad and we need to all deprive ourselves and our bodies of something that they need. Instead, he's saying that something is going to happen. In the future, something will happen. And if we're not ready, we aren't awake, that event will take us by surprise. And you don't want to be caught off guard. Well, over the last several weeks, our gospel readings have been pretty bleak, haven't they? I just told Deacon Kevin, I'm ready to move on from the end of the world readings. But that's what the lectionary has for us. Judgment and preparing for the end of the world. It's not my favorite topic to preach on. But tonight's reading is appropriate as we begin the Advent season. Advent, a season, is, of course, a season of waiting. It's a season of great anticipation and ultimately a season of hope. The lectionary this year begins with Jesus' Olivet Discourse or his Sermon on the Mount of Olives in Mark chapter 13. Chapter 13 begins with the disciples walking through Jerusalem and marveling at the temple and telling Jesus, look at all of these stones. Isn't this amazing? Now, this was the second temple, which was constructed in Jerusalem. You see, the first was built by King Solomon, and it was later destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar during the time of the exile. It was rebuilt about 500 years before Christ was born, and King Herod had expanded its footprint to be the amazing architectural accomplishment that it was in Jesus' day which is exactly why the disciples are so enamored with it at the beginning of chapter 13. 
But Jesus bursts their bubble immediately by saying that it's all going to be destroyed. Don't get attached to it. No stone will be left on top of the other. And then he leads them out to the Mount of Olives or Olivet, which is outside the city, but affords an amazing view of that very temple. And it's there that he explains judgment and the abomination of desolation and the return of the Messiah. Our passage begins with talk of tribulation and heavenly phenomena that portends the second advent of Jesus. And this evening, I want us to focus on the latter part of our readings, but I cannot do that without making a few comments about Jesus' prophecies before that. Well, first, there is much debate about the meaning of verses 24 through 27. The word tribulation may trigger some theological trauma for you. There's a particular theological system called dispensationalism that mapped out a sequence of events foretold by the prophet Daniel and fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Accordingly, there would be a great tribulation and Jesus will return to reign either before or after or in the middle of that dark time. And however you interpreted those texts determine if you were a pre or a post or a mid-trib Christian. There was also a question of whether Christ would reign before or after the tribulation, which meant you were either a premillennialist or a postmillennialist. And then there was the question of a rapture, when all Christians would ascend into the air, leaving the unfaithful behind. I use the word theological trauma because this system was often used to scare the pants off of everyone. And in many churches preached that salvation depended on which configuration you actually believed. Now, I'll just say that this system was making sense of biblical data. And no one can fault anyone for that. However, this was a bit of a novel way of understanding these difficult passages. And I personally, I won't die on this hill, but I personally think that we are living within the Great Tribulation now. And that that whole system was reading the text more literally than it should have. But nonetheless, the biblical data remains, and it means something. Here are a couple things to keep in mind when we encounter Mark chapter 13. First is this. That Jesus is talking to his disciples about the temple. It's something to keep in mind. We know that Jesus taught that he is the true temple. That is, he is the place where God and man meet. And this is why we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In other words, the temple was a temporary type of Jesus Christ. It was a means to an end. And now that that end has come, Jesus himself, the temple has served its purpose The disciples should not be so impressed with it. But his language about its coming destruction also echoes the prophets, especially Daniel, who foretells of the corruption of Israel and of Jerusalem, and especially her leaders. And that will be so great that God will bring their... their, their, um, 
Their sin will be so great that God will bring judgment upon them and that the temple's destruction will be the culmination of that judgment. In Daniel's day, the first temple still stood and his prophecy was eventually fulfilled. That temple was destroyed. But as I mentioned already, it was rebuilt. And now we have Jesus saying much the same thing using much the same language. Apparently, apparently, we aren't completely done with this prophecy. And sure enough, some 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the second temple was, in fact, destroyed. As a side note, I recommend reading the Jewish historian Josephus on the Jewish-Roman war that led up to this event. It's fascinating. I don't have time to get into that, but just reading through some of that is fascinating. But it's important in understanding when Jesus says this generation will not pass away because that generation literally saw this happen. But the point here is that Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. But this leads us to the second important point. We still aren't done with the prophecy. And this is how biblical prophecies work. There are often layers to their fulfillment. And I just want to point out here that, yes, what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 has already taken place. However, we're not done with the prophecy, which is why I want us to focus on verses 32 through 37 now. Now, First, there's a lot, uh, well, there's a sort of holy ignorance at play in this passage. Jesus insists that neither he nor the angels know when the temple or this prophecy will be fulfilled and the temple destroyed. And since we aren't done with the prophecy, this ignorance continues concerning the return of the Messiah. In other words, if Jesus doesn't know when this will happen, we weren't intended to know. That's not the point of Mark chapter 13. The point is for us to stay alert, to stay awake, not to fall asleep. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, it's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. In this example, Jesus does not give his disciples And he does not give us the satisfaction of knowing when the master will return. The best he gives us is the lesson of the fig tree we read moments ago. Nature gives us all sorts of examples of change and development that indicate when something is about to happen. My friend, who had only gotten four hours of sleep on Friday night, also asked if 53-degree temperature was typical for West Tennessee in December. He was from the north. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yes, it's very typical, we told him. But you would expect things to get really cold once all the leaves fall off the trees, wouldn't you? That's because that's what happens, usually. Naked trees are a sign of the coming winter, right? And just because that hasn't happened yet in West Tennessee and won't happen probably till mid-February, that doesn't mean it won't happen. 
So it is with Jesus' prophecies. Something is coming. That is a promise as sure as the coming winter. But the warning is that you and I could miss it. We could miss it. Years ago, when I was in uh, art school, I went uh, home for Christmas. And my mom and stepdad had an old hot tub that was given to them probably a year prior to this, at least. But they never set it up. My brother-in-law decided that he'd take it off their hands this Christmas, and he organized a crew of men to load it up. And I think I was recruited, probably not, I probably didn't know I was recruited, but I was. But I was on vacation. So I set no alarm for that morning. So when they all showed up, I was fast asleep, right? But I woke up to a a loud commotion in the middle of that morning. When they showed up, they had lifted the tub because it had turned upside down. It was stored upside down. So this crew of guys came in and they, they lifted up the tub. But the problem was that there was a skunk that took up residency underneath. And of course, the second they saw that skunk and the skunk saw them, that skunk sprayed. Those men dropped that thing and they all spread out and ran all over the yard. All the while, I was just waking up from falling, from being asleep in the guest room in the front of the house. And I will tell you that this particular morning, I felt no guilt in getting up, quietly putting on my shoes, and sneaking out the front door and staying away all day. I didn't come home for the rest of the evening. Well, the point is that when we are asleep, bad things can happen. But Jesus doesn't want us to miss his return. So he says, stay awake. Something is going to happen and you don't want to miss it. You don't want to be caught off guard. Winter is coming and if you aren't ready, you'll freeze. So tonight, I don't want you thinking about pre-trib and post-trib and raptures and all the millenniums and all that stuff. I want you to wake up. I want you to stay awake. I want you to prepare for the Lord's return. I want you to wait and to anticipate. But above all, I want you to hope. In the middle of our text, Jesus slips in a verse that's very interesting. Verse 31, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's been talking about earthquakes and falling stars and darkening suns and all of these he thinks he said all of these things he says will pass away. But the most stable thing is his word. And in this context his word is the rep- is the promise of his return. Of course there's so much wrapped up in that one promise such as judgment and all of the cataclysm he's been talking about. But there's also a promise to gather the faithful to himself. And the thing about promises is that you cannot prove them. You cannot prove a promise. It's only when a promise is kept that we can know its truth with certainty. See, Janie and I promise to love each other until death do us part But until that day, neither one of us knows 
with any certainty that the other will truly love us as we promised. That's why we desire fidelity, faithfulness. I am faithful to my wife and she is faithful to me. Faith. We can only receive a promise by faith. And friends, we either believe the words of Jesus or we don't. We either have faith that he will return or we don't. We either believe that his resurrection to eternal life guarantees our own resurrection to eternal life or we don't. Last night, I overheard an older gentleman give a, a young man some questionable dating advice. It's very difficult to listen to. <laughs> and at the end, he told the young man that what really counts is that he needs to be happy. Do what makes you happy. That's the most important thing. Now, let's just say that the advice that he gave was categorized as immoral according to the Bible and could be really only followed if there was no judgment and no Jesus and no return, and no promise. And if that were the case, doing whatever makes you happy is the only ethic worth following, isn't it? If our only hope is in this life, why wouldn't we pursue happiness at all costs? Brothers and sisters, what seems so ominous in our readings tonight is really a call for hope. It's a promise that Jesus makes that he will come again. And we have something beyond this life. Amen? A life that, let's face it, is full of heartbreak and sorrow and tribulation. We do have the option to do whatever makes us happy in this life. But you don't need me to tell you that happiness is fleeting. It's joy that we are after. The assurance that all will be made right and that no matter how much happiness we either do or do not have, we await an endless summer with Christ who has died and has risen and will come again. Spring is here. The fig tree is in bloom. Don't fall asleep on the soft pillow of creature comforts and the endless pursuit of worldly satisfaction. We have a hope that is not of this world. So keep watch. Set your hands and your hearts to the labor that the Lord has given to you in hope. And do it with all your might and all of your heart to the glory of God. And keep watch for his return. For who knows when it'll be. So friends, seek holiness. Seek forgiveness. Seek redemption. But above all, keep watch. Wake up. Stay awake. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to do this. That you would keep us so attuned to your grace and to your mercy. Lord, that pleasing you and living our lives to your glory is our central focus. So that we are setting ourselves about the work and the task that you have given us to do for your glory. So that in that day we are prepared. We are ready. We see you coming and we can announce your return. And we can receive it with great joy. So, Father, if there is anyone here tonight whose hope is failing, I pray that you would ignite it, 
If there's anyone here that has lost his or her joy, I pray that you would reignite it. If there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak to them and that they would know that your death, the death of your son and his resurrection was for them and it guarantees their eternal life. We pray for new birth. But above all, we pray that you would keep us awake, keep us coming back to your word, trusting in your promise and understanding all of this life in view, view of who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.